This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 71. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 71 you're listening to, and this episode is brought to you by our friends over at DistroKid, Focal Monitors, Audio-Technica, Gearslets.com and Universal Audio. It's great to be back here with you today. Bit of a somber uh, last couple days here, of course. The passing of Prince. Yeah, not much to say about that, except that I'm just, uh, you know, as many of you are, very heartbroken. It's just uh, what what an incredible talent we have lost. And, uh, you know, what a body of work he has left behind. Uh, we're fortunate in that respect. But, uh, yeah. Prince, an amazing, amazing guy. So um, I do have a great show in spite of the somber tone. I have a fantastic show, actually. Mr. Nico Bolas will join us shortly. And uh, Nico, of course, works with a wide range of people. And I tell you, he works with uh, a lot of a lot of people over and over again, namely uh, Neil Young. I'm just going to read off some of the people he's worked with here. He's worked with Leanne Rimes, Boss Skaggs, Celine Dion, the Mavericks, actually, as I was speaking to him, he just concluded uh, working on a new Mavericks recording. But he's also worked with Johnny Cash, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, Robin Ford, Los Lobos. And uh, yeah, he's got quite a list. Strangely enough, he actually has a background in virtual reality. We'll talk about that. We talked uh, over Skype, and uh, he was over at Blackbird Studios in Nashville, uh, getting ready to uh, fly back to Ventura, California, where he lives. It was funny because uh, in the middle of the interview, Richard Dodd uh, popped his head in. And I don't know if you know who Richard is. Richard's known for his work with uh, a wide range of people as well, including Joan Baez, Sheryl Crow, Green Day, Sean Mullins, Raymond Jones, Boss Gags as well, Mandy Moore, Johnny Cash. A, lot, a couple similar uh, projects here as, as Nico and uh, John Hyatt. And he's got quite a list too. Anyways, Richard poked his head in and said a few words, and we uh, uh, agreed that we would try to hook up and have Richard come on the show. So that was an extra bonus, getting two uh, fantastic engineers in the room at the same time. So, uh, yeah, Nico Bolas coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, DistroKid. That's uh, one of our new sponsors. DistroKid is doing a really cool thing. They are a digital aggregator in uh, in the same vein as CD Baby and TuneCore, uh, the difference is, is that, you know, when you're trying to choose an aggregator for how you're going to get your music up on iTunes and Spotify and all that, the choices that you've had are, is that you pay per release and, you know, it's been, you know, a chunk of dough and then you give up some of your royalties as well, uh, or you pay yearly, uh, for each of those releases. And that can add up if you're a prolific artist. So with DistroKid, what they do is they just take a yearly fee of $19.99 for you to upload an unlimited amount of tracks. And the key there is, is that they don't take any of your royalties. Of course, the more money in your pocket, the better. And they also are able to get in the stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor at a fraction of the price. So that $19.99 goes a long way. You get super fast service. You get to keep 100% of your royalties. And... uh they can help you distribute uh, cover songs legally and get you paid when other people use your music in YouTube. And they'll get your music into iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, Tidal, YouTube, Deezer, and 150-plus other stores and streaming services. So you might want to check them out. That's distrokid.com. However, if you want a 10% discount, you want to save a little more money, make sure you go over to the Working Class Audio page and click on the link. And that'll take you to a special page dedicated for us. Uh, here at WCA, just so uh, if you're a WCA listener, you can get 10% off. I think that's a quite a deal. So DistroKid, make sure and check them out. And, you know, if you're an engineer and you're thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not uploading any music, what I love to do with the bands that I work with is always offer up as many resources as possible. And this is one more resource to offer up to have in your tool belt when you're working with a band. Because, you know, these days, shrinking budgets and all that, you know, you just want to be, be the go-to person. Uh, that bands come to. And uh, this is just one more little, one more link in the chain that uh, can help a band do their thing. So that's it. Uh, Let's get into our interview here with Mr. Nico Bolas, speaking to us from uh, Blackbird Studios in Nashville. 
Nico Bolas, on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, man, thanks for doing this. No, it's cool. I just was finishing a Mavericks record, so I was... I was in the studio. <laughs> I was just under underwater. Back in the early 90s, I was in this band called The Sextants. It was on a, we were on Imago Records. I don't know if you ever remember that. That was Terry Ellis's little venture. Hugo Burnham, Gang of Four Hugo Burnham, was our A&R guy. I don't know if you know him or if you're friends with him, but he, mm-hmm. at the time, when we were making our record, he said he had pitched your name as a potential person to produce our record ultimately we ended up going with larry hirsch but that's the first time i had heard your name was like 1990 91 i think oh when i was young and had a future yeah (laughs) (laughs) then you went on as it turns out there was this band that we uh we ended up doing a few shows with which you know mary's danish oh yeah and i this there was this record they put out and i love the sound of this record and I didn't know it then, but if my information is correct, you mixed that record. American Standard. Yes. Yeah, I produced it and mixed it with Peter Asher. Yeah. Love that record. Oh, thank you. And that was, you know, early 90s. Yeah. And so uh, I've, I've been aware of you for some time, but um, it was, ultimately it was Al Schmidt who said at the end of our interview, he said, you got to get Nico Bolas on. And I said... <laughs> I said, I've been talking to him, and, and I'm trying to get him on, and he's just been busy, so, yeah. so I'm glad we could work it out. No, I appreciate the attention. Are you kidding? This makes me feel great. <laughs> it's good, <laughs> good for the ego. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you're, you're currently at Blackbird. You live in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I live in Ventura. Okay. Yeah. So you, you've been out at Blackbird, what, a week or so? Well, <clears throat> I've been back and forth from Blackbird for 10 years, but um, this particular trip, I came out. 10 days ago, we tracked for three days, I think, or four days, and then the band had to go do a gig in Kansas City. So they split, um, and I mixed uh, a record for Living Color while I was here for the three days I was off. And then they came back, and we started tracking again Monday, and we finished last night. Wow. Mixing a record for Living Color. Yeah, well, five tracks. You know, I know Doug and and uh, all those cats and... and um, I just, you know, they're they're finishing their record. They got a bunch of guys working on it. So I got to pinch hit for a few tracks. Wow. That's that's super cool. Will Calhoun and I go back a long ways. I actually met Will Calhoun doing jazz records. He's an really? incredibly versatile drummer. Yeah. And he played, I forget what the name of the section was, but we did a jazz record at Longview Farms in Massachusetts years ago. We became real good friends. And I would go see him play in New York City. He does these really great, um, they're not busking, but they're just one-offs like in down in the village somewhere huh plays all kinds of weird instruments and then we were tracking for uh richie sambora and orianti about a year ago two years ago and we got reacquainted and I, I did all the tracks for him and he loved it so when they went to mix this record he sent me some to just see what i would do with living color and they loved that so i got to do a few tracks it's good to be working huh oh i love it are you kidding in this day and age just to be in a studio <laughs> is a blessing <laughs> I know. Especially in a real studio. To be a Blackbird is the greatest gift in the world. I have never been. At some point, I will I will go there and make the pilgrimage. Uh, you know, I know, you know, I know Vance and I know Ryan Hewitt, who is obviously a recent transplant, and mm-hmm. Mitch Dane. And, and of course, I know Rolf. Uh, everybody knows Rolf. Everybody knows Rolf. <laughs> Rolf is like the mayor. Blackbird's cool because you you hear about it. You know, everybody I know knows about it because of all the gear and stuff, which is fine, especially if you like museums. But that what's important about Blackbird is that from the downbeat, the way it is, <clears throat> and I the studios to me are run from the top down. You know, the personality of the person that owns it or runs it is the personality of the studio. Which explains Blackbird, because from the first time you walk into the control room, you feel like you've always been here. Hmm. It's really comfortable. You just sort of know where everything is because that's where it should be. And you can use anything because it's all part of your new home. And you feel like it's your home, you know, and you go out into the kitchen and it's shared. So it's community. So you run into other musicians and it's family. And there's always cookies and there's always coffee and there's always somebody running around with kids. It's so relaxed and casual that you don't really realize it's one of the most high-tech studios still in existence. It's Mm -hmm. one of the only places I know where everything works. And if it doesn't, it's replaced and fixed within an hour. But all that happens in the frame of, 
you know, being your best friend's clubhouse. A testament to, to John McBride. Oh, yeah. He runs this place. It, it's really inc- – his office is right at the hub. You know, he's, it's right there. The door's always open. And anything you could possibly think of or want to talk about, he knows about. And uh, I always tell him, I said, if, there, if, if you only have one of something, it's because there's only one of something. <laughs> <laughs> right, because he tends to collect. Oh, he's got everything. Like, I, I hear his collection of 251s is rather massive. Yeah, I just used about a dozen of them on the Mavericks record because I can. <laughs> Doing the Mavericks record, you, did you do that based on the band's geography or did you do it based on your desire to work at Blackbird? Both. Okay. Both. I first met Raul years ago at another studio in Nashville. I, I got hired and flown in to do a big band. It was like 41 pieces or 44 pieces live. And he was one of the duets. And we met when I did that. That was another session entirely. It was like 24 strings live, six guitars. Wally Wilson produced it and he wanted to start and finish a fully arranged record on the same day, mixed. And so I came in and did that. It was a gas. Uh, and Rollo was one of the singers because he's good enough to just sing and it's done. So is Laurie Morgan. But we maintained a friendship. And then when they came to do the first Mavericks record, I flew out to do it. Uh, the first one when they got back together. This was, I guess, four years ago, five years ago. In Time, it was called. But I told him, I said, well, to do what, if I'm going to be involved, the way I want to do it is I want you to do it all live because that's the way you guys are best. You know, you don't, if the headphones fall off, that's actually good. You just got to be able to see each other, be in the same room. It'll sound great. Don't worry about the leakage. I'll take care of it. And the only place I can do that is at Blackbird because, like I said, it it feels very casual, but it's actually unbelievably precise and targeted in everything that everybody does from the assistants to the gear to the interns, everything. So we did that and it came out amazing and Big Machine loved it and it released and it, it brought them back and it was a really good record. So when we went to go do... The next record, which we called Mono, we decided to use the same studio because mm-hmm. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know? Exactly. So the the key, I would assume, working at Blackbird is it's strong infrastructure. I always find that if you go to a studio that's just, like you say, everything's working, everything is where it should be and it's run well, it, it really works in your favor. Steve Genowick, one of my favorite engineers, he's at Capitol. It, he basically sums it up. If you have um, everything's got to work, you're in record when you walk in the door, have great headphones and order food right on time. Those are the three things you have to do. That's it. Mm-hmm. If the headphones are amazing, which they are at Blackbird, then everybody forgets their recording because they're into listening right away. And if they start playing and there's no such thing as let me get a level because you've actually already got it all done, then they just start playing music. And the next thing they know, you're playing it back. And that comes as a surprise. Yeah. They never thought they started the record. And now you're <laughs> done with the record. That's the whole, my whole trip. That's, that's what I try to do. And at Blackbird or in, in just about everywhere I work, because everybody wants to do a good job nowadays. It's not like one studio is light years ahead of another. Blackbird, hands down, is the best facility, mostly because they run on such a tight margin. They can afford to be the best facility. You know, there's an immense collection of stuff and they spend their last dime on maintaining it. You know, they don't have to answer to anyone except the owner and his office is two doors down from where I am right now. So it's easier for them to have that title because that's what it's for. The guy that owns it wants it to be that. When you have facilities like the Village or Capital, they have, uh, their, their margins are thinner. It's tougher. The real estate's more expensive. The staffing's more expensive. The demands are more varied. So that's really difficult for them to, to stay perfect. And what they lack in perfection in terms of maintenance, they make up for in energy and vibe. You know, you can't discount those places as creative epicenters. I'm just talking about the mechanics right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any of the three studios I just mentioned, whether it's Village or Capital or here, what I generally tend to do is go in early or the night before. The guys that work there all know me. They'll go in and jam, you know, on the instruments that are set up. So everything's actually already been played through. You know, you've actually put on headphones, hit the drums, hit a guitar, listened to the singer, looked across the room. You can actually see the piano player. There's not a packing blanket in the way. Everything's already sort of sussed out. So when the band shows up, the biggest change is that the players are amazing. And then the only other change is how they play, you know, the dynamics. A drummer may hit harder or quieter or whatever. You can make those kinds of adjustments. 
but they're subtle. They're fine-tuning. They're mixing adjustments while tracking. But everything works. That's the biggest thing. So removing that, removing the, the technology and, and making it completely invisible and making That's it- That's the whole, my whole goal, period. Yeah. If you don't know I was there and it sounds better than you thought it would, I did my job. Yeah. Which is, in, in our industry, there's such an emphasis on equipment. People always just talk about, oh, you know, I got to have this or I got to have that. And really, it's not, it's not about that. It's all bullshit. It's all smoke and mirrors. I love new gear. Everybody tells me you have to have old gear. You know why I like new gear? It works. Because <laughs> it has a warranty. <laughs> My job is what's in front of the microphone. It doesn't matter what microphone I'm using. If what's in front of the microphone is relaxed, inspired, and is connected for the three and a half minutes of that song, and I can play that back, we did our job. Yeah. It could be an SM57 or it can be a Telefunken 251. Either way, you're playing back inspiration. You're playing back Muse at its finest. If you're not, if they've had to sit through cables failing, headphones breaking, somebody wasn't in record when they did the run-through, which is the worst thing you can possibly do and will get you thrown out of my entire universe faster than anything, then you have a really excellent recording of a shit performance. And there's plenty of those already. Mm -hmm. We don't need to make more of those. I watched a video of you on YouTube. Of course, you know, before I do any interview, I, I do what everybody would do. You know, if, unless you're in the CIA, you Google somebody. So I Googled you and I came oh, up with God. this video <laughs> and uh, it was interesting. Uh, I loved it. Uh, listening to you talk about, uh, I think it was a situation you were talking, you were explaining a situation with a bunch of uh, assistants. And you, I think you walked into the control room and three of the guys had their feet up on the board. Oh, yeah. And you said, you three can go. Yeah, done. See you. And um what I walked away from from watching that, I thought, this guy is serious. He does. He means business, and he is not fucking around. Well, thank you for that. Um, a lot of people just think I'm an asshole. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I have I have respect for that kind of you know suffer suffer no fools or you know take it's no not bullshit. That, you know they're not fools. They're kids. They. Uh, my thing is, I was born and raised and built by a guy named Val Garay, and. He was the toughest guy I have ever worked for, and I owe him everything because of that, because I was smart enough to get into a lot of trouble, clever enough to get myself out of most things, and cocky enough to think I knew what I was doing except with him. And he was patient enough, like a parent, to tolerate that and not patient ever to tolerate it at the same time. So when I was a jerk, I knew about it. And he would stand on my foot and talk me down. But there was something about the way, you know, this is back in like the late 70s. You were an assistant. You were actually, in. you didn't realize then, we didn't call them mentorship programs, but I was in a mentorship program. And I would be damned if I was going to quit with this guy, you know, because, you know, he was going to have to, I was going to graduate. I was determined. And because of that training, you carry that with you, whether it's post-traumatic stress <laughs> or the right way to do it. I don't know, but you carry it with you. And, and I know the loyalty and the fierce determination I had and the love of the art of engineering that I still have. And if anybody takes it lightly, it's personal. And I know too many kids that are the same. And I want to help them. I want to try and give them what I got from Val. Maybe not in the same delivery method. I think a lot of the things that he did were crazy, but they worked for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, that I have to stand on somebody's foot and yell at them. But I'll be damned if anybody else was going to communicate with me as clearly as he did. And because of that, you know, I owe him A and B for the 10 guys that show up that want to be recording engineers or producers or want to work in music studios one of them's going to make it because that one is as hopelessly addicted as me or Richard Dodd or, or Steve Jenowick or Barisi or any of the people that you've interviewed. You know, we're all the same family. You know, you, you listen to Chris Lord Algae did this. Um, I saw some video of him once and, and he was talking about when everybody else was having fun in college, he was sweeping the floors in his studio. You know, so was I, we all were. So no matter what your opinions are of, of 
all of the people that do what we do, uh, there's one common thread, and that's we're fiercely loyal to these rooms. This is our life. And if you don't take it as seriously as we do, then it's insulting us and everybody else that we hold dear. And I don't want it around. So, no, I fired them. Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, obviously there's, for the person that may be listening and thinking, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to, you know, uh, I don't know if that methodology works. I will I will say to that listener to look at your discography because what what's common in your discography is consistency. If you look back, it's like, oh, there's a Neil Young record. Oh, there's another Neil Young record. Oh, there's another Neil Young record. Or there's, you know, I can't remember the name of every artist. Neil Young sticks out. But there's a lot of repeat clients for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm I, very fortunate that way. And that's that speaks volumes. Thank you. I'm just really lucky, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you now, know, or maybe I mean, I'm priced right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you Bargain should reevaluate basement. your pricing structure. No, so <laughs> that's all fine. I, you know, in this day and age, if you can keep groceries on the table and you're grinning, then you're doing fine. You know, yeah. It um, the the good news about the speaking of the pricing structure, the good news about no budgets is the only people still making records are the people that are still making records, which means the hopelessly addicted, like me, and and you know, the people we're talking about, um, the people that showed up with the laptop and an art director are going away because they can't print money on product. And, and that period happened, uh, because it was, it used to be, you know, when we came up, uh, it was very hard to make something good. It took a lot. And now, or somehow in the last decade, perhaps, maybe even the last 15, 20 years, it got relatively easy to make something good enough. And that became the market. And when it became good enough, then it became as cheap as possible. And everybody had the argument, well, my nephew has a laptop and a Pro Tools rig, and he can make a record in his bedroom. So we'll just do that. And then you mix it. And if you can mix it on your laptop, then I don't have to pay for a studio. And then all these studios that were running on these thin margins started to go away and then we had no homes. So then everybody's stuck working in their houses and not seeing each other and collaboration changes. There isn't any, you know, the, the greatest detriment to our industry is the lack of hallways of major studios because I learned more talking and running into some guy that I've either heard about or only met once or twice bullshitting in the hallway at Capitol or at the village or, or, or at the record plant or, you know, at the hit factory when it was still open You'd run into guys and you'd learn things, you know, and you'd also find a sense of peace because you realize that everybody's the same. You know, I met Brendan O'Brien for the first time and he went from myth and legend to really nice guy with a Prius, you know, and I calmed down. It was like, oh, you know, he's, he's just great guy. There's, there's nothing separate about him. You know, you, you hear wild stories of Bob Clearmount, the mythical Bob Clearmount, and you meet him and he's the nicest guy in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Without studios as a hub where everybody's there, we don't get to see each other except maybe the Grammy party at the village if you go and mm-hmm. or, you know, some award show. And I can't stand those. So I never see anybody unless I go to a real studio. It's kind of a drag. You know, there's like a group of, of engineers, producers that kind of have that cult of personality. And I and I mean this with all due respect. I don't mean any disrespect to, to Chris Lord Algie or to uh, Chad Blake or there's there's like a host of people that a lot of people know about. Mm-hmm. And I and once again, with all due respect, not a lot of people coming up know who you are. You're kind of this guy that's got this huge body of work, but you're flying a little bit under the radar for some people. Some people really crave going to awards and like participating in a lot of Grammy events and parties and stuff. You just alluded to that. You're, you don't seem to be that guy that that goes to, to these things. Is that, is that accurate? Am I off base? Yeah, it's, I can't stand them. (laughs) (laughs) I always feel really out of place. I don't know what purpose they serve for me. Um, I'm not good at publicity and all that kind of stuff. I have, you know, a lot of people tell me I should do that stuff because you'll, Mm -hmm. you'll get, you know, more A&R people will see you and you'll be doing more mixes and this and that and the other thing. But it's just not, that's, I just don't do that. That's not, 
you know, who I am. I mean, I go to places and I see, uh, you know, Chris or Jack Joseph or any of those guys and they're running around with headphone mics and, you know, they're, they're speaking all the time. And, and I speak once in a while on panels if I'm invited, but, um, I just have never done that. You know, Chad Blake doesn't do that either. Chad's a really reserved, quiet guy. He's that's, just really, yeah. really amazing. And that's why everybody knows about him. He's an incredible mixer, you know, and credit where credit's due. So's Chris. So's those guys. The reason that they're there and they were invited to be there is because they've had pop success, pop as in popular. Mm. You know, I work with a lot of artists who make art for art. And and it doesn't mean that that any of us knows anything more or less about how to use a limiter. It's just that the the group of people that I tend to gravitate toward, or more importantly, the 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 artists that I've been fortunate enough that gravitate towards me, um, are not necessarily the the ones that are in pop culture. You know, uh, um, Chris in particular has just always been in the charts. He's just always got something going on, and he works really hard to be that guy, and he pays attention. You know, so more power to them. That's great. It's not that, you know, at, at that level, you either have to accept that you want to be in, um, in a fame kind of thing, or you just want to do your art for art's sake. Mm -hmm. And I've always leaned towards the latter. When I'm out of money, I envy the former, you know, because those guys <laughs> sure. always seem to be doing well. Uh -huh. But I still don't know how to do that. And the other thing to recognize is <clears throat> there's no way if a certain sound is happening, like Serban Gane is happening, the guy's on the radio all the time has been. He was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and was extremely talented and figured out the adjectives of the group of musicians that were questioning him and pushing him. And he did an amazing job. And then success breeds success. There's nobody that's going to mix like him. And there's nobody, you know, back when I was coming up, that's going to mix like Clear Mountain. And before that, nobody's going to mix like Glenn Johns. Mm -hmm. The reason those guys sound the way they sound is because that's the way they sound. Richard Dodd just walked into my little interview room. Oh, really? Come on over. Say hi to Matt. <laughs> hi, Matt. Hey, Richard. How you doing? Good. Got to get you on my show. He has headphones on. I can't. He, he, wants, he wants you to be on his show. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll set it up. And okay. I get 10% of all the proceeds. <laughs> right. Right. Which means you're buying breakfast. <laughs> Excellent. You want to join us? I got like another half an hour to go. Oh, no, I'll just sit and listen. I wonder if there's a way for him. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, if you want him to join us, that's totally fine. You know, feel free. Have a seat. Listen in. Richard's always around. All right, hang on. Sorry, I didn't mean to blow your... No, 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 it's cool. I was just talking about what a twit Richard Dodd was, and then he walked in the room. <laughs> so what, what, what I was saying about those guys, and the, a lesson that I learned a long time ago, and, and anybody that wants to be an engineer should know. I got called in the, in the 80s sometime to do a record for Glenn Johns, and he was my hero, and, and he called me at home and said, you know, I want you to engineer for me. And I was in complete disbelief. And, and, uh, I showed up at the sound factory and cut tracks for him for this single that he was producing. And then he came in and he said, right, okay, I'm going to go to lunch, mix it. I'll be back. And I looked at him and I said, no, there, you have to mix it. Cause I want to, you know, this is my chance to learn what you do and how to be you. You're, you know, you're the guy. And he looked at me with this strange look on his face and he said, don't be ridiculous. And he sat down, he pulled down all my faders, turned the speakers up. And in 20 minutes, it sounded like a Glenn Johns record. And they were my tracks, and I have no idea what he did. He flurried about on some equalizers, a few, changed the balance to where it sounded good to him. And he said, that's what I would do, but that's not what I want. I want what you would do. So he pulled all the faders down, cleared the equalizers, and went to lunch. And that was the lesson. I'm always going to sound like me. Glenn will always sound like Glenn. Bob will always sound like Bob. Chris will always sound like Chris. Richard will always sound like Richard. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And, and inspiration from Richard Dodd is what you need. <laughs> well, and there's a, a, a stick to your guns approach here that is a, a little bit of that message in here. But also I wanted to say that, you know, there's an Oscar Wilde quote that, that Ross Hogarth always uh, mentions, and it's it's has something to do with, you know, uh, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Uh, you got to know, engineers have to know that they're not going to be Nico Bolas. They're not going to be Chris Lord Algae. They have to learn ultimately how to be themselves and to find their own voice. Absolutely. 
So it's more important, I think, for the individual engineer to learn who they are and develop on their own into their own person. Yes. And you have to give yourself permission to have the courage to do that. I've st- I study mixers. I've studied Richard. I've listened to a lot of his records, and I've always wondered, how the hell did that happen? How did that happen? And then you run into him in a hallway, like we talked about before, and you can ask him, and they'll tell you. You know, it's no big deal. There's no rocket science to what we do. They're the same knobs and they go the same directions. Um, but my taste would not have created that. I may think it's applicable later, the next time I'm doing a guitar or, or you know, whatever it is I'm doing. And I'll say, oh, you know, Richard said something about this. Or I ran into Chris and he did this or whatever it was. And, you know, how the hell did they do that? And you try it and you like it or you don't. But what you choose comes from you, the mixer. Mm-hmm. And what they choose comes from them. And the summation of all the choices is what a mix is. It's not a preset. <laughs> That's why presets crack me up because, you know, it, preset for what? You know, you, you go get the Jack Joseph Puig Fairchild with the presets for Umma Gumma, and you're sitting there going, what the hell was the program going through it? How loud was it? This makes no sense whatsoever to have a preset. Learn what the device does and set the variables to your taste and then that's what you're going to use. Presets are starting points, perhaps, you know, if you recorded it, you know that the it's always the same loud going in, but it's just kind of dumb. And it's also anti-creative. Mm-hmm. You're being lazy. Uh, I'm wondering if you could speak this, you know, completely opposite of gear. If you could speak on the, on the topic of financial matters and surviving long-term, uh, how it's worked or not worked for you and what other engineers should be thinking about. Other careers. Other careers, yes. <laughs> Think about being a lawyer. You know, it's it's kind of like, Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. Exactly. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't think about uh, financial things because um, I never have, and to start now is way too late. I just know that I have groceries, and uh, I just will work until I'm not working anymore. I don't have any financial advice. This is not a good industry to get into if you want to make a lot of money. Although there are people that do what we do that have made a lot of money. But if you want to find out what they did, you got to talk to them. There's a savvy that I was in the wrong line for when they handed that out. Um, you know, sometimes I make a bunch of money because a client has a bunch of money and and they pay me really well. And I have just as much love and passion for the project I do the week after for someone that has no money. But it's the same amount of time to mix a song. And if it's not in your heart, then you really shouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. That's my recommendation. Okay. I mean, essentially, it's if there's somebody that, for those that are listening, if they're getting into this for, you know, great financial gain, be forewarned. Well, they're wrong. Yeah, right. (laughs) Just don't do it. It's really simple. And make the The, money you you have last. Listen, there's cats that do this. I mean, you know, the complete antithesis of that is go talk to Dr. Dre. You know, he got in it because he loves it. He's unbelievably talented. People don't realize that he's the one who mixes those records. He's the one that actually sits in the chair and moves the faders up and down and tweaks the EQ and balances what you get. And he's unbelievably talented at that. He can spot a great groove a mile away. He can hear a hit song. And he's also smart enough and savvy enough on the business to know where to go with marketing, where to go for funding, where to go with release, where to go with promotion, how to do Instagram. How to, I don't understand all that stuff, nor do I have any intention of learning at this late date. So <laughs> if you want to be that, then he's the best there is. Yeah. Go study him. You know, he can do that. It, it, you can make a ton of money making music. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying for the art of engineering – my particular path is is very, very bubble-like. I stay in the art of engineering and producing. My gig is to make people more productive than they would have been if I wasn't there. Which is a great transition. I want to ask you, when working with someone like Neil Young, for example, I asked Al about this. I said, you know, how, do you, how have you stayed in this long and maintained the peace with such huge egos that he's dealt with? And not to say that, you know, Neil's got a huge ego, but how do you maintain that? How do you stay in the game? What have you learned over the years to work with guys like Neil and, and to make them want to keep calling you back, which he obviously does? Uh, well, the most important thing is, what the fuck are you talking about? 
take everybody else's number out of his phone. Oh, right. <laughs> Richard suggests erasing the contact list in his phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why, you know, I my career was really in the tank until Richard came into my life years ago. And now we're both in a tank circling. Um, you know, the most important thing I can tell you is that everybody puts their pants on the same way. And if you can bring that, which is a grounding and a levity to any artist, then it allows them to just be human. You know, Neil is really sensitive and really aware. Mm -hmm. And everybody thinks that as, as are most real artists, they're actually more fragile, uh, of an ego than normal people. Normal people do not wake up at three o'clock in the morning with a lyric or an emotion and have to give it to the world. They have to write it down. They have to record it. Uh, and then they have to have the courage to present it, bad or good. In order to be that guy, you have to be able to go on a stage and have them boo and feel that's just as much of an emotional impact as applause. You know, that happened to Neil once. He walked off the stage and I said, how do you deal with that? And he goes, I made him feel something. That's my job. So, you know, that... What do you do for a person like that? Be as normal as you want to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 sycophants are everywhere. So the one thing you can give a true artist is a true partner in the process, you know, which doesn't mean you walk in and tell them how to write the bridge. But what it means is you make sure that the coffee's fresh and they have some food because they forgot to eat. And if they have a question, you wait hmm. until you really understand the question and you give them a really honest answer because they're trusting you for just that. You know, and it's an honor to be in that position. And it's also no big deal to be in that position. You know, somebody's got to be there and you are. So get over it. They're, they're, nobody's a pop star when they come in the control room. And if you solo the vocal, I can prove it. <laughs> you know, it's the most naked thing in the world. And so you have to take care of these people as artistic partners. You know, not not really partners, but... There you're, we're, it, Eddie Germano used to explain the studio business and recording to me this way. He said, Nico, we're a restaurant. We're in the service business. We put out a menu and they pick whatever they want and we make it as good as possible. And that's it. And when they leave, if they remember that it was a great experience, they'll come back. You know, and he ran, uh, you know, arguably one of the greatest studio empires on the planet. And his son's the same way, Troy Germano. He runs it just like a restaurant. There's nothing that they, they don't know mm. the word no. Hey, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Mr. Nico Bolas here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a little sponsor break with Audio Technica for a sec. I want to talk to you about a microphone I've mentioned before. It's not that old. It's just it's fairly recent uh, release from them. It's the Audio Technica ATM230. This is a, a drum microphone or meant to be a drum microphone. It's a hypercardioid polar pattern. It's dynamic. comes with this great clip-on for the drum, so you can just clip it right on. So they include that drum mount, they include a protective pouch, but it's very well built, it's super rugged, all metal design. Uh, it's got these rare earth magnets inside it to deliver some stellar sound quality for you. And as I mentioned before, of course, it is hypercardioid. So of course, rejection from other surrounding drums and cymbals will be minimized. I can't think of an Audio-Technica mic that doesn't do this, but once again, handles very high SPLs at close range. So you might want to check that out. Retail price is $249. Seems that street price is about $139. And they do sell them in three packs. So if you want to, you know, pick up a good deal and just cover a group of drums in uh, for one low price, there you go. And you might want to check that out at audiotechnica.com. Yeah, that's the ATM230. So make sure and check that out. So let's get back into it with Mr. Nico Bolas talking to us from Blackbird Studios in Nashville here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, speaking of uh, studios, when I first reached out to you, you uh, were in the midst of building a studio. My mix room, yeah, but that was easy. That's just for me. Tell, tell me about that. That's back in Ventura, right? Yeah. It, um, I was at Capitol for five years, and then it got very crowded, and they went through several regime changes, and it got um, a little bit expensive and a lot of a drive. You know, I, I live in Ventura now with, with – uh, with Mika and you know, she's an artist, a local artist, and we're up there all the time. And it's a 150 mile round trip for me. So commuting daily to do mixes was prohibitive cost wise, just in fuel, much less I gained 20 pounds just sitting behind my steering wheel for three hours a day. So I found a space in Ventura 
that was a little bit more square footage and was close to home and had nice fresh air off the ocean. And I leased it and I built a, a room there. So basically I got four walls and a floor and then outfitted it, which took about 10 days. I did it with Diego, one of the engineers from Capitol. We went in and built it. Interesting. Is that uh, an in-the-box setup or do you have a console? Or? Well, it's in the box except for uh, there's two sides to my world. I'm analog for as long as possible from the source to turning it into a number. Then once it's a number, I never leave. Okay. You know, if it's going to get compressed, it gets compressed as I make the record. Uh, if it's going to get ridden, I try to ride it as it goes to record. Okay. Once it's in the box, I use as little as I can. And I just balance and, you know, basically it's, it's the philosophy of recording live to two track, only I do it in a Pro Tools rig yeah. and you can make fine adjustments later. But leaving the box has never sounded better than staying in the box to me. And, and I've done it many times where I've done shootouts with all the weird outboard busing, summation, satellite connected, Bluetooth, whatever. None of it sounds good. It's all crap to me. Once it's in the box, it's in the box. Balance it. Make your record right the first time and, you know, get over yourself. Nico. That's my <laughs> adage to myself. <laughs> so when you're tracking, you really have to pay attention. That's the rule. Mix it when you cut it. Here's a, this is a total, uh, you know, uh, odd thing that I, I found uh, on you. So can you tell me what, what's your, uh, you have a past with virtual reality. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been, been, uh, there's about four cynical comments coming from Richard. Should we just wait? You, gonna, you want to bring them? Because <laughs> none of my realities are real. <laughs> I live in a virtual reality. <laughs> VR, I first got exposed to VR in the late 80s. My brother was working for NASA Ames. He got a master's degree uh, from Stanford. And he designed the head mount display uh, that evolved into what is now the Oculus. My brother actually invented it. Oculus took it, and they did a great job of marketing it and and have their version of how it was created. But that's where it came from, from all those design guys back then. And they were using it to design the wing for the space shuttle because it was very expensive to build a wing and put it in a wind tunnel, especially with all of the slight changes they had to make for you know reentry experiments. So my brother was part of the team with Scott Fisher and some other guys um, that built this head mount display that they could track. So wherever you looked, you saw, and it used a huge computer at the time. It was the size of a small room that was using a, a new type of processing called parallel processing. So it could do the graphics fast and they would change the wind, the wing shape and, and it would be cool. My brother also, in order to maneuver in a virtual space, he built a thing called a pinch glove, which Mattel then used for games. Uh, hmm. But you put this glove on and then you have this hand in the space that would interact with the objects you saw. So I went to visit him and I was flying around in space and uh, I ran out to my car and I got this new thing called a Walkman, which was relatively new then. Put it on and I was listening to Zeppelin while flying in space. And I said, this is the future. This, this, we have to bottle this because you can come home from work and go away for 30 minutes and not take a drug. This is the greatest thing ever. Unfortunately, People don't have Cray computers and head mount displays at home yet. This was in the 80s. But I worked really hard on creating experiences. I did three of them. We debuted one at Seagraph in 1995. I had three pieces that I did. One was all uh, computer graphics. One was a ballet that I filmed with stereo cameras that I built. And one was a gymnastics routine that I used the same stereo camera rig. And I set them all to music. And we won a bunch of awards. And then I went to Sony to try and get a project started with that as an entertainment venue. And they only wanted to talk to me about enhanced CDs and how I could show them a return on the money within the next fiscal quarter, at which point I left. Hmm. Um, did it again in 96 and in 97. And then I kind of got away from it and I got into internet radio. I started an internet radio company with some of the same people on that team. They're all real smart guys. They're up in the Valley, hmm. Silicon Valley. Um, and now, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, this kid, Palmer Lucky, was a student that my brother knew at Stanford. Or no, my brother's teaching now at SC. He knew Palmer Lucky there. And he said, here, take this head mount and use it for, you're interested in VR, try and do something in games, you know, make it work. And as a project, learn what a startup is. So he did. And, and some people latched onto it and wrote a great story around it and raised a bunch of money and flipped it and became very successful with it. And that's kind of the new third round of, of uh, a new technology. It's actually an old concept mm -hmm. 
that everybody thinks they just invented, but it's been around for a long time. And I've done a bunch in it. I mean, uh, the actual patent for um, objects uh, coordinated in music in virtual reality was granted to my brother, myself, and and a guy named Ian 20-some-odd years ago. It was so long ago, it's already expired. Hmm. So, yeah, I've been in it for a long time. Virtual reality seems to be making a, a, a comeback, or, or at least it's it's in another phase mm-hmm. where, you know, costs have come down and, I mean... Oh, they'll get much cheaper. I mean, the funniest thing was the Oculus costs, you know, several thousand dollars and the Google Cardboard's like 25 bucks or whatever it is. <laughs> and they both are great, you know. The, the, the advent really is the display technology. Because we all have phones, we all have amazing displays. You know, you have to understand when I started it, you needed a CRT, cathode ray tube. It was like a tiny television. Mm-hmm. And we had to go to China to find enough televisions that were matched and small enough to get them eye-width apart and then build lenses to distort them enough to give you a 180 field of view. There's a lot of technology just in the, in the optics to make it work. And then there's the whole issue of tracking, which they still haven't solved. Mm-hmm. You know, an Oculus, uh, on most people, if you wear it for longer than four minutes, you're going to get nauseous because it doesn't track fast enough. Interesting. Uh, which is not to say it's the only one. There's a, I mean, none of them do. They will. It's just not there yet. Huh. But I'm very excited that so many people are excited. I think it's a fantastic art form, you know, and a great creative space for us to go to in the next generation. It's really, really cool. Do you see uh, many audio opportunities opening up for in, in virtual reality? Oh, of course. Yeah. They, I mean, it, it has to be – there are no standards, and it hasn't been defined what good is. Um, everything that I've heard – is tricky at best, but certainly not good. Hmm. You know, and and the problem is, is that visually, if you turn around, should the sound field turn around? Or do you want to stay in your own little private Idaho? If it does turn around, how fast does it turn around? That's a lot of ratcheting and a lot of of weaving of sound fields to do uh, in a short amount of time. And if it doesn't track accurately, then your brain gets confused and you get sick. Uh, The other thing that I saw... A nice try, I thought, was was a, a 3D or a, a virtual reality film of a live concert where when you would walk up to the drums, the drums got louder. But the problem is the drums got louder way after you got there. <laughs> so you didn't know what was going on because it was tracking so slow. I see. So there's there's a lot to do. And the good news is, is there's a lot of really smart people on the to-do list. So it will happen. And it's going to be great. Uh, it gets better every day. Back to our reality of, of audio and making records, you know, talking with Al Schmidt and knowing how old Al is, I just thought, man, that's what I want to do. I want to stay in it like that long, as long, you know, as long as somebody's willing to pay, you know, cause my wife works a corporate job and she always talks about, oh man, I just, I can't wait to retire. And I think, man, retire. Wow. God, I can't imagine retiring and not doing audio well al's al's big joke every time he talks to anybody is that he lies to his wife every morning and tells her he's going to work (laughs) that's just you know that's the way we all look at it um the thing to recognize about al and and i hope that it happens to you and i hope it happens to me is he's first of all he's timeless i have no idea how old he is um and it doesn't matter i do know that the last time i saw him at Capitol, he was doing a big band and he came and grabbed me out in the hallway, like, you know, where you learn everything. And he says, come in, you got to check this out. And so I, he drags me into Studio A and he says, no, 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 here. And he pushes me in the middle of the console and turns it up. And and um, it sounds just gorgeous and deeper than usual. I know what Al's horns sound like. I've listened to him and studied him, you know, for 30 some odd years. And I looked at him and I says, what the hell did you do? And he goes, ah, I knew you'd hear it. Come here. And he drags me out in the studio and he's like, I couldn't sleep last night. I figured this out. And he had moved the trombones and the brass back a foot and raised them a foot higher on a riser than he normally did. So this is a guy who's recorded since Duke Ellington, still sleepless at night, trying to figure out how to do it better and then doing it. And then he realized, yeah, like Richardson, he realized he fucked up all the previous records. <laughs> That's good. You're going to get us both fired, Richard. <laughs> yeah, I'll call him up, Richard, and let him know that. <laughs> yeah, you let Al know yeah. that that's what Richard said. <laughs> Richard's going to deny it all. <laughs> he does that. He's English. They just they go away. They order beans, toast, and say what? Yeah, interesting. It, it's it, to see his passion is is in it's infectious, man. Oh, absolutely. 
No, I want to grow up and be that. You know, that's that's the real deal. And that's also why he's still a child, because it's just fun. Do you see yourself continuing as as far into the future with this? Or, or are you like, well, okay. yeah. I mean, I don't see past tomorrow, right. you know, but I certainly know that tomorrow I'm, I have mixes I got to work on, and I'm really grateful yeah. I do. Well, very cool. Very cool. Nico, I appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, I know you're busy, and you've squeezed this in. And No, it's my pleasure, man. I'm sorry to, to have had such an erratic schedule. It's amazing how, as a professional recording engineer, the concept of me getting a microphone to work on my own is impossible <laughs> to be able to do this interview. That was the hardest part. <laughs> Finding a place with the mics, so I could get you a wave file. Wait, really? How do you do that? All right. Well, take care and thanks for thanks for uh, chatting. And uh, Richard, hope to talk to you soon. Indeed. All right. Thanks, Matt. Nice to meet you. Finally, I'll see you later. Yeah. Nice to meet you, Nico. See you. Bye bye. There you have it, Mr. Nico Bolas here on the Working Class Audio Podcast with a special little interjection there from Mr. Richard Dodd, which hopefully we'll get Richard on the show. So that's it. We are out of time, and I do want to make sure and uh, thank Nico for coming on the show. And, of course, want to thank our friend Mr. Cliff Truesdell for providing that music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his voiceover talents, and Mr. Cole Williams for his help with the podcast. And I want to thank our sponsors, DistroKid, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. And I want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. As usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.